there are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 in Toronto. It is the one year anniversary of hi-fi radio and to help us celebrate michael hainsworth former of bnn <laughs> the heavyweights in the studio uh gonna be chatting with him a little bit about what to do in a career and how to d- develop your career enhance your career shall i say uh from world of broadcasting into i guess the world of unknown we're gonna then talk about oil with rafi tamazian of canoe financial and end it with a talk about Canada and the amount of debt that our companies are strapping on. Martin Roberge, our North American portfolio strategist, has a little bit of cold water to uh, throw on the Canadian flames. Anyways, without further ado, let's talk with Michael Hainsworth. Michael, you have interviewed me on television yep. for the last 15 years. And Jack yeah. says, Wolf, he's a tough interview. Uh, maybe one I'd day. say bring your, bring your A game when you're going to see Michael. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. Well, yeah, yeah, it's good. You get to the bottom of it. So now, I guess now it's my turn. You're, uh, oh, you, great. You, I'm yeah. on the hot seat now. <laughs> well, you know, truth be told, um, Rick Mercer show ended this week, I believe it was. And we contacted Rick and, well, we tried to contact Rick. And he we, said no, so you we, got we, to we, so, so we said, let's get Michael Hainsworth on instead. It's a business show after all. But yep. uh, 30 years in broadcasting, Michael. Yeah. Uh, and what really caught my attention was one of your t- Twitter feeds. Uh, where I think you said uh, you got a job at 680 News uh, reporting business. And yep. you said, but wait a minute. I don't know anything about business. Right. I, I had been in radio for, for years, and the boss had come to me, and he, and he said, uh, we've got the business department, but we don't have a reporter for it. We like to be able to send people out to things and stuff like that and, and be able to fill in for the for the guy who usually does the gig. Uh, would you be interested? And, and I, I said to the, the general manager, I said, oh, thank you. Well, you never say no, right? That's career ending right there. I said, great, but there's only one tiny catch. I don't know a damn thing about business news. Uh, and uh, he said, don't worry, uh, you'll add a bright, fresh new perspective to the job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think he ended up being right because it gave me the ability to look at things from a different angle and to recognize that the most important task of all was to take highly complex ideas and boil them down into something that was understandable to a radio audience. And that applies to everything in life, television, print, anything. Interesting. Well, it's funny because I did a lot, of, a lot of work on CP24, and people said that's one thing I do well. I can distill something down to simplistic form. I'm a pretty simple guy, I guess. Uh, Michael, how old were you when you were working at 680 News covering business? I was in my early 20s at the time. Uh, I got into radio at 17. I was pushing buttons overnight at what was then CKFM 99.9. And uh, I would do the overnight shift. The DJ would tape the introductions. That's Phil Collins. And I'd press the play button on that. And I'd do everything else except actually be the on-air guy. And then at 5.30, in the morning, I would leave the station, I'd hop on the subway, and I'd head to high school, and I'd crash in the cafeteria until class started, and that lifestyle catches up to you after a while. And uh, of all things, I would fall asleep around two in the afternoon in Mrs. Aguiar's business <laughs> class. <laughs> so I guess I retained it through osmosis. You, so you were in high school yeah. working the broadcast. And the thing was, was that um, the the teachers never gave me grief about falling asleep in class other than wake up, Hainsworth, uh, because they knew I wasn't out partying the night before. This was a kid who had figured out what it was he wanted to do with his life, and he was working at getting into that, and he hadn't even left high school yet. Tell me something today. To cover business news, are they going to hire a broadcaster, journalist, or are they going to hire a CFA, MBA, business guy? 
that depends on the outfit, the the operation that, that wants to do the hiring. I would strongly encourage um, that it be um, the broadcast side because the, the primary focus there is um, telling interesting stories. No matter what the content is, it always has to be interesting, and those people are capable of, of doing that. But you do need to have the, the underlying background knowledge. And, and it took me 20 years to get to where I am today, and it was so remarkable and very heartwarming when the people that I left behind at BNN described me as a mentor because it meant I had applied all of that knowledge I had gained over the last 20 years in finance and 30 years in broadcasting. So what have you learned, Michael, 30 years covering business, about business? The, the, the most important things that you learned about the markets and business? Um, never quit a job without having another job standing by. Is that what you did? I did the exact opposite. So clearly I'm not taking my own advice on that front. So you don't have another job like I don't. I've, and this is the craziest thing about it, is walking away from a well-paying gig, the, the, be it the title of Canada's most watched business reporter, uh, just walk away from it because I wanted to focus on what would be next in my career. And while it's easier to find a job when you've got a job, it's easier to find the right job when you make it your day job to do it. Isn't that something? Well, you know something? I think Jack and I are going to apply for a couple of gigs at the Rick Mercer show or your show. But uh, so are, are, ch- it, Changing of the Guard in uh, Canadian Broadcasting, is that what you're seeing here, Wolf? Well, yeah, Jack. Like, and we, we're in studio with Michael Hainsworth, formerly of BNN, and all over the radio dial in Canada. You, you work in multiple markets in, in well, the past? The neat thing about uh, when I worked at 680 News um, in the business department is that 680, owned by Rogers Broadcasting, had has stations right across the country. So we would feed those stations uh, their business reports. So you could, in fact, find yourself on the other end of the country listening to me. And it, the same sort of model applied to television, too. Local television 6 o'clock newscasts all had me uh, as their business guy. Pick it, so the feed would get picked up and broadcasted across. And the funny thing is, is that every day I would put out a network advisory email telling people what I was covering. And knowing that most people don't give a rat's ass about business news, I wanted a way to encourage people within the industry to open and read that email and find out what the business news is of the day. So I would include a meme photo with every email I would send out every day. And if I was too busy to send out a wacky picture, I'd get complaints. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> some, what, what about the, the, the stock market? Uh, did you learn anything about the stock market covering it for 25, 30 oh, years? Oh, absolutely. Where, where on earth would you begin on that front? It, it amazes me. Buy low, me. sell high, maybe? Well, buy high, sell higher? Well, to your point, actually, one thing that I did learn about buy low, sell high is most of us do not do that. We look at a stock when it's on fire mm-hmm. and go, oh, maybe I should get into that, buy into it as it approaches the peak, and then when it tumbles, panic and sell. So most of us actually buy high and sell low despite being told time and time again to do the opposite. You're supposed to sell page one, buy page 14. Uh, but what you're saying is exactly to the media attracts itself to the most glamorous story, the biggest story of the day, yep. which means the stock that's making new highs gets the attention. Mm-hmm. Stock that's making new lows, perhaps we get attention too, but those meandering in between, not interesting. That's the stuff investors should probably pay more attention to. Look, stay tuned, folks. We're going to pay some bills around here because we are in the advertising business after all. Michael Hainsworth is in studio. Real treat to have a heavyweight join Jack and I and teach us a little bit something about broadcasting. Stay tuned, folks, right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I heard you on the wireless back in 52. Lying awake intently tuning in on you. If I was young, it didn't stop you coming through. Oh, oh. They took the credit for your second... Yes, for Michael Hainsworth. Video killed the radio star. So a man who began in radio, went on to television, yeah. and is now unemployed. Uh, 
let's talk about advertising. That's your point of self-unemployed. That was self-inflicted. Self-inflicted. Yeah. But, but you believe that's the better thing to do. It actually makes a lot of sense to find the right job for you. Uh, you, you are obviously in a position where you uh, have the uh, good fortune of good planning in the past and uh, good fortitude to be looking forward, uh, I think, taking care of uh, your true needs uh, as opposed to someone else's needs. Very, very smart, Michael. But let's let's talk then about the world of advertising. Yeah. Uh, you, 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 on BNN, I always saw you also as a techie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you're very attracted to technology. Uh, you're, you're attracted to things that are new. Um, the world of advertising is, is, is a world that's very dear to my heart and it's a world that's changing rapidly. And as such, I'm very long Facebook and I'm not, I'm not uh, fizzed or phased by the uh, uh, breach that Facebook has uh, undergone because uh, it represents about 50% of digital uh, advertising dollars. Google represents the balance thereof. So we own those two stocks. Uh, traditional, re- traditional broadcasting is challenged. Uh, you know it, I know it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not dead. Uh, and, and radio is, has always been one of the most resilient mediums, surviving the VHS, surviving the DVD, d- downloads. Burn. It, it has continued to survive. Uh, the locality of it, I think, is very, very relevant. People want local news. Uh, it's a portable medium, but so too are uh, our, our cell phones now. Um, so, so where do we go from here, Michael? And where do you fit in? to the new media world, do you believe? When it comes to the the advertising component to any media operation yeah, as, a, as a, the, the primary driver for revenue, one of the, the neat things about digital over analog is the granularity that comes with knowing who's listening or watching, how long they're listening or watching for, and a lot about the demographics of that individual themselves. Uh, radio, broadly speaking, doesn't have that capability. Uh, and, and not only that, but it's also a, a function for the advertiser of being able to say, these are high-quality eyeballs. These are high-quality earballs because they're deliberately listening. It's not that a song came on the radio, it's not my favorite song, but I'm going to listen through it for something else, or same thing with a news story on a radio station, or even in the television world as well. When I would stand uh, on the set at 12 noon and say, coming up story A, B, and C, if story A didn't interest you, you could sit through story A and wait for story B, or you would go away. If you stayed, you were only passively involved in that content. You You weren't really engaged in it. But if someone is watching something on their phone or listening to it. It's because they've made the decision that that's specifically what they want to listen to or watch. And that is very valuable for the advertiser. So that's speaking of traditional media. So let's now go back to then new media. Mm -hmm. New media is different. And that's really what you're leading us towards. Uh, So so share your thoughts in terms of new media, in terms of engagement. The engagement when it comes to new media uh, is, is focused on the idea that this is not a linear package of content uh, that you if you don't like what you're you're being presented with you just keep moving on and so what that forces us to do as as broadcasters as content creators is to refocus our energy on the individual I, I like to say that in radio and television because of its linear nature you shouldn't be writing the content for the people who are interested in the content you should be writing the content for the people who are not interested in the content because those are the people you have to hook That's interesting. Right. But in in digital, you can focus 
solely on the content, knowing that the only way somebody's going to be interested in it is if they have a natural interest. Then you add on to that your experience with drawing people in on any given topic through your writing and your presentation. And that just creates a, a much more valuable experience, not just for the advertiser, but for all of us involved. But less waste, too. If, if you, you buy traditional media, you're getting waste that you don't really want, but you're paying for. With digital, there is no waste because those who are tuned in right. visually through words and pictures are tuned in. The number of times I would allocate, say, seven minutes to a, a conversation on TV, which means you got to go seven minutes because you've got other things planned for after that. Right. If the conversation would, ran its course over five minutes, you're still obligated to talk for two more minutes. And this is the problem with all the cable news networks around the world is they can't just turn off the microphone when they're done. They have to keep going. They have to keep filling. With digital, you only deal with the gold. Let's talk about the phone company owning oh. media outlets. Oh, well, hang, hang on. I the, the package was signed off yet. I haven't received the big fat check. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. You told us you're not getting a check. You walked off the set. <laughs> well, we, we had a negotiated exit. Yeah, fair enough. But again, uh, uh, media convergence was discussed back in 2000, around mm. the days of Nortel. And it was all about the pipeline versus the content. And in the boardrooms and in the hallways, staff always said the two don't mix. They think differently. The one is very CapEx-oriented, long life cycle. The other side, i.e. cable and, and pipeline, versus content, which is very creatively driven, mm. and the two don't tend to match. Marketing versus accounting type mindset. Um, now we're in the world of digital, uh, once again. <clears throat> what, what do you have to say in terms of that? Content, pipeline, digital. Well, you've got a good point, uh, and I, I raised it on my Geeks and Beats podcast as well, which is that about 10 years before I got into broadcasting, um, a big shift had happened where traditional corporations had recognized the uh, cash flow that comes with media, and they bought into it. Like, why on earth does a light bulb manufacturer own a media property? Why does GE own NBC. Yep. Uh, and so what you saw in the the subsequent 30, 40 years was a, a hollowing out. Uh, the idea that the newsroom needed to pay for itself was brand new. Prior to that, it was the, the fluffy entertainment programming that paid the freight for the newsroom because you were providing a service to the community. Um, the bean counters... Yeah, part, part, part of the license agreement. Right. And, and the, the bean counters said, no, 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 you got to start paying. you you, you got to pay your own way. And, and that was the beginning of the end of, and the hollowing out, uh, thanks to, to that, that occurred, where you'd have the people at the top being paid big bucks, but everyone else is being paid garbage money. And the good people in the middle with institutional knowledge about any given newsroom and industry, they were all pink slipped and let go. And so that created a void in, in the middle. With digital, I want to take all those people who got those pink slips and I want to put them to work because they know the content. They know how to tell a story. They just need to get paid. So now I got to figure out a way to get paid. So, Michael, I've always said content is king to the point of it becoming a bit of a cliche. So, mm. but, but let's take a step back. Is there still truth in that in that statement? There absolutely is. And it's the only way to survive because you, you look at a BuzzFeed listicle, you know, uh, seven things that could kill you in your refrigerator. Number four will surprise you. It doesn't actually surprise you. It's vapid. It's hollow content. And so you'll click on the first one. But you're not going to click on the second or the third. Giving people what they need, giving people what they want, that's the secret to content is king success. And then the last thing, because again, I've, we've seen this happen in media, where they're looking for tighter and tighter and tighter sound bites. They don't want to go deep into a story. They don't even want to go beyond the first derivative, let alone the second and third derivative 
of the story. This is where digital has a huge advantage, I believe. Right. And I also disagree with the premise that people don't want to go deep on any given topic. Um, but what I do agree with is that when you go deep on a topic, you have to first start shallow and, and take some of that gold from that conversation, whether it be two minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, and put that out to the world and let them know, hook them with the gold. And that gives them the incentive to learn more. And the more they learn from you, the more they're going to like you and the more likely they are to keep coming back. You're an absolute genius, Michael. Uh, it's funny, I had lunch with you yesterday and I saw a different side of you. Being interviewed by you is one thing, having lunch is something you else. You saw the back of my head side of me. That's what it was. You're only using the face. Absolutely. But having the opportunity now to ask you some of the tougher questions on air has been an absolute treat. And I want to thank you and I want to wish you great success. I don't need. I know you don't need any good luck, but we'll throw a bit your way at the same time. I look forward to uh, seeing you in the new media world uh, at a very, very soon date, my good friend. Coming up next, we're going to talk about oil with Rafi Tamazian of Canoe Financial. Stay tuned, folks. It is so much fun. Right after this. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Come and listen to my story about a man named Jed. A poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food. And up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Hey, Raffy, you know that song? I do it well. Raffy Tamazian of Canoe Financial. He runs the Canoe Energy Fund out in Calgary. Uh, boy, oh boy, lots going on provincially. Uh, uh, BC doesn't want the pipeline. Alberta does. Kinder Morgan, the big backer behind the pipeline, the builder of the pipeline. It's, what, how big is this project? But it's the Trans Mountain. Is it a $7 billion project? Uh, there's seven, yeah, seven Co- left se- to spend. Seven left to spend. They've already, they've already spent a billion. I spent think. a billion. Yeah. They were spending $300 million a month, and they said the government cannot get its stuff together, stop the project. Uh, Albertan government steps up to this, talking to step up the plate and actually uh, moving the project forward. So where do we stand, uh, Rafi, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the pipeline that is to take our crew to a second customer finally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Adds to because there's a there's a pipeline there already they're they're going to twin, and so it'll take more production to that coast, which is you know something we've all heard ad nausea by the professional you know investment in, or yeah, the industry that it's good for the industry, and there there are multiple points to really point out here, but I'll just to summarize quickly, um, you know first of all this is real. This is not uh, a head fake on the part of Kinder, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, it demonstrates, you know, that what something we've talked about for now years, in fact, that these companies are leaving the country and selling their assets because of politics, not economics. And the governments have reiterated over and over, no, no, it's economics, not politics. Yeah, right. And so they were wrong. And now they're backtracking. And so we are in a very vulnerable position here. So we have two NDP yeah, we have two NDP governments here, uh, and and the Green Party, and the Green Party, yeah. and then we got the, the our Prime Minister uh, who's now flying back, I guess, for an emergency meeting. Yeah, thank oh, you know, doesn't that give you comfort that our, <laughs> the drama teacher's coming home early? He he decided to leave. Gets a bunch of complaints from people going, "Your federation's falling apart under your watch." So the drama teacher's coming home on Sunday to have high tea with the two NDP leaders. That are supposed to come up with an answer. So, so, so who, yeah, whose jurisdiction does this fall under? Because uh, and and is it a constitutional issue uh, for Canada? It's 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 a 
it falls under the federal consti- uh, federal jurisdiction in okay. in our opinion. Now, I haven't got legal. I didn't spend Fair time yep. getting legal advice, but in in the battle is going to be that no, you, the government doesn't have the right to do this. The federal we're government going to take it to the courts. The federal government has to decide whether they say we do back down and here's what we're going to do, and they're going to show force. And he he obviously gets himself into a potential hot situation. But I think what he has to realize is, I mean, there are B.C. chambers of commerce saying, we got to do this. B.C. chambers wow. that are saying, we need to do this. There, there are B.C. indigenous groups saying, we need to do this. And Horgan has painted himself into a corner. He's probably lost the election. The next election is a result of this. He's got himself in a bad situation. But uh, I, I worry the most that all of this keeps going on and Kinder really walks, because then what happens, the last thing we want is all this chatter about Alberta buying the pipe. Because do you, can you imagine the, the reputation we have when, when a company like that goes away to all their international investors, Kinder, and says, yeah, that Canadian asset we had, we, we couldn't stand the political environment, so we sold it. Uh, oh, who bought it? Uh, the government. Oh, the government in Canada made it so miserable for you that you, you, they bought it off you, a, bi- a business you wanted to do. That sounds very Banana Republic, right? That sounds very Argentina or Venezuela, not Canada or Alberta, where our governments have to, you know, it, it just does not bode well for future investment prospects from foreign entities. And that is what we've been fearing for years. And now it's right on the front of our doorstep. And and you know, look, look, okay, but Raphael, let's stick on that topic for a second here. Look, our governments should not be in the pipeline business. Let's face it, they shouldn't be. But every now and then, they got to make exceptions. Cash for clunkers in America, uh, quantitative easing. Yeah, but uh, it's their job to create policy, not to actually go out and, and acquire these assets. Agree, but and they I made, but they made a mistake. They made a mistake. So, what if the Albertan government were to lay pipe? Uh, and and bring this project forward. At the end of the day, my wife my wife hates that line. At the end of the day, but at the, at the end of the day, uh, we're gonna get our crew to multiple markets, which is what we want. And the differentials of thirty dollars, which I can't repeat enough, how Canada gets ripped off. And you, I think you mentioned it on air to us, Rafi, that yeah. we are subsidizing Americans' energy policy, selling them our, our crew at thirty dollars a d- discount to barrels. Insane. So uh, they get the pipe and, and and bring it to foreign markets, and hopefully we get closer to market value. Value for our crude. Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. Uh, let's let's capitulate now and move forward and say we have to buy the pipe. Uh, first of all, maybe it isn't the Alberta government. Maybe it's independent parties in Alberta that do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other ways. It, it, it's a whole other level of complexity, negotiation, valuation. It's going to create delay, uh, which we don't need any of. But um, that setting aside the the global perception that a Canadian government entity had to buy it off Kinder because it was, and, and it was the government entities that created the problem in the first place. Setting that aside, you're right. That I'm glad we have that alternative. And, and it, it, it is a good thing at the end of the day for us, but for that individual situation, but it is not a good situation for any foreign investment coming here because ah. we didn't rectify the problem. Right. So, so, so Kinder, Kinder Morgan has to walk away, take a loss on the trade. Uh, foreigners would look at that and say, we don't end up in the same situation. Is that your point? Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah, so we, we are seeing some strength in the crude markets. Uh, Rafi Tamazian of Canoe Financial is online. We're going to pay some bills around here and just find out why he remains bullish on crude right after this. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Born to be a roughneck, I'll never amount to nothing. Pulling case and playing pipes, hard labor. Yes, it is. So is running money. So is running oil money. Rafi Tamazian, who is amazing, Canoe Financial is just that. He is a manager of oil assets and portfolio of oil stocks and bonds and energy, this and energy, that. And you, you, you even have a balloon, I think, in the uh, Lake Ontario, don't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Story energy. energy. That's kind of cool. Um, yeah. Uh, we'll ask you a quick question about a stock, and then Jack's going to come back to the pipeline bit here. But uh, Vermilion, uh, Rafi, do you have an opinion on Vermilion? Jack and I were just looking at that stock, international assets. So they're not just Canadian. Technically, the stock looks like it's turning the corner, mid, uh, a mid-cap type company, pays a dividend of 6%. Uh, do you have an opinion on the company? Yeah, so I mean, sure. I mean, I, it kind of it, it's not a name that we do a lot of work on, but it would be we would categorize it as a very uh, significant name in terms of um, uh, quality from ownership, uh, management, the yield uh, strength, and the asset base. The company carries uh, a lower risk because it has multiple jurisdictions globally where it produces uh, gas and oil. So it gets multiple pricings, which reduces your risk of one concentration of of asset mm-hmm. base. Um, they have areas that this is inevitable. It comes with the the, the price that you pay for going global like that. Um, certainly, Canoxy, the old Canoxy, had this problem in Yemen too, where countries like Canada change their juris, change their risk profile, change their desire, their French asset, for instance. You know, the the, the government is less inclined around hydrocarbons and they put pressure on that uh, asset base to wind down put put more regulation and so that company run runs into that a little bit here and there um and that puts you know I'm trying to find the the, the downside uh, risk there and that one maybe is mm-hmm. just inevitable with multiple jurisdictions you're going to have more jurisdiction risk and and then you're going to carry that regardless with that company but there I mean this is a company that I, I was financing that company in the mid '90s uh, as a banker, so they've been around forever, and um, and uh, have done, you know, have given people uh, should instill an enormous comfort. That's good. So, uh, around the security of it. One of the things that caught my attention about this company is going to play into what you're going to talk to about the pipeline. But uh, they're natural. And I, I called our analysts today on the stock, asked him his opinion on it. And uh, we're talking about their natural gas assets because we're not that keen on natural gas in North America. Uh, mm-hmm. It trades below three bucks. You don't make any money in that gas. But in Europe, where they have natural gas assets, I said, how much are they getting for a, was it a thousand or million BTUs mm-hmm. of natural gas? He said about $7.80. Hey, seven eighty in Europe and less than three bucks in Canada. So again, let's go back to if we could liquefy this stuff in Canada and ship it abroad, Rafi, would it not be net net benefit to the Canadian economy? Yeah, so that is why that LNG market has absolutely catapulted in the last twelve months from uh, way too much supply floating around in the ocean and not enough demand to the point where Shell went from beginning of 2016 saying the supply-demand curve will intersect in the late 
2020s mm-hmm. to now they're talking about 2022. And if it's 2022, well, now suddenly if it intersects and becomes competitive, Canada becomes competitive. And that's why they re-engaged on uh, LNG Canada because they could build that in four years and be shoving it in that gas into the market right as the oversupply uh, crosses over and the demand becomes greater and pricing becomes more uh, valuable to them. So that it's, it's is, it, is that project going to happen? Is that going to come to fruition? Well, the, the, this is uh, this brings you back to uh, Kinder Morgan. Um, you know what is going on there? It, it appears that there is discussions behind the scenes on that. Uh, Horgan seems to see this as acceptable, but then he's being held uh, ransom by uh, the Green Party there to vote against it, um, but uh, or to try to deny it. But all indications are it's going to happen, and the the you know the, the scuttle around town here right now is who is LNG Canada? Is it Shell? Is it um, Petronas coming in there with the 15? Because Cogas is rumored to be selling. There's there's rumor that Canadian Natural Resources actually CNRL has bought that interest, and they're going to get into that business too. Further downstream, lots of uh, moving parts here that could really stimulate the sector. So, go ahead, I say uh, Rafi, dollars and cents. Uh, talking about the the Trans Mountain pipeline. Why do why do Canadians why does it uh, why do we need it and what are the long term economic benefits what are the the big dollars that we're talking that the tax benefits and efficiencies that we have with these pipelines? Well, I mean the number one priority is it's the cheapest form of transportation uh, coming with along with the safest form of transportation of that hydrocarb of that particular hydrocarbon in the world. Uh, pipeline transportation is cheap and it's it's safe, um, and and so we're moving. Um, I want to say the Kinder Morgan currently produces about 250,000 barrels, and the expansion uh, will add something like 500, 500 barrels, 500,000 barrels um, mm-hmm. out, out there. So that's significant. Yep. Um, that's you know uh, that means we get uh, better prices. You know, Wolfgang talked about the differential being so wide to the U.S. market. So if we're making more money then we create more earnings and that means we create more tax dollars for the government and we got royalties then that uh, come to the provincial governments you've got obviously jobs to construct it for the industrial sector Uh, you've got um, jobs that are permanent to run it and operate it Um, and it it runs through the interior of BC which is not exactly the you know it runs through Kamloops it's not like a place that is has been booming and could use some of that stimulation in their economy. So it, it's a very, it, it just has multiple factors. The, the alternative here is the industry is starting to squeeze out ways to move this oil. And now they're talking about, um, you know, the, the rails moving up to 400,000 barrels a day of oil by 2020. Okay, the, you know, the, the, there's this hypocrisy here around this is it an environmental issue really to you guys because if it is you're preve- you're forcing an elevated type of environmental risk to happen right here in our backyard and and that's just not acceptable and, and yet no one really talks about that but it scares the hell out of me that we've got 400,000 barrels rolling down the the, the rail tracks the with this, you know yeah, it's just crazy you saw what happened in Lac McDantic 
when has the last pipeline uh, rupture been of uh, uh, an, an infinitesimally small impact relative to that? Mm-hmm. And now we're going to add to the risk of that happening by having all this rail. So it's completely backwards, in my opinion. Yeah. Rafi Tamazian, you are amazing. Uh, canoe Energy money manager it's a tough space you're in but uh there are some green shoots that we are seeing so you keep up the good work we'll stay long your product coming up next folks we're going to talk with our chief strategist martin roberge in Montreal. right after this making money is the best so how do you make more money come on back after this you're listening to hi-fi radio from global news radio 640 toronto Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio. We're joined by Martin Roberge in Montreal. Martin, St. Denis Street. Did you dance that song when you were a little boy? Yes, I did. Of course you did. Good old safety dance. Good to have you back, my friend. You were were traveling uh, Canada. You're back into Montreal. Yeah, well, actually, I was a little bit on a a holiday short break last week. But uh, next week, week I'm hitting the road. Uh, visiting uh, Western-based uh, uh, accounts, uh, retail and in- institutional accounts, and then uh, it will be uh, Eastern accounts uh, in in May. Nice. So, um, yeah, institutional investors—that's where the smart money lies. We always like to know what they're thinking. So, in terms of the uh, the market itself, you, and I hate going away on vacation because every time I go away on vacation, it feels like the market goes down. You probably have the same sense. Anyone who works on Bay Street always feels the same way. We hate going away because it seems that you know market always goes down, which it doesn't. It's just every now and then it doesn't. <sighs> it's never pleasant. But uh, are we in a bear market, or is this just a correction that we're going to have to mark time with and? Uh, hopefully, see uh, greener pastures twelve months forward. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a typical and natural correction, which nor, normally uh, occurs uh, when you have a downshift in um, in growth momentum. So, so just to to be clear, like we've we've been enjoying really strong momentum over the past year. Uh, owing to the uh, U.S. tax reform and the infrastructure uh, spending plan that uh, President, President Trump has delivered, uh, has like both ha- have filtered through the economy. Uh, and but what we've seen lately is a slight de- deceleration uh, from the high growth rates of uh, of late last year, as the um, the the lagged rea- um, the lag impact of uh, of the the rate hikes by the Federal Reserve's are obviously uh, filtering through the um, the economy and on top of that uh, we've got this situation where global growth could could be impaired by um, uh, trade tariffs or trade tensions uh, between the US and the rest of the world so net net uh, this is a slight uh, negative but we we'll, we are still um, decelerating but from a a very high level of global growth synchronization so it's um, Obviously, it's a marginal negative, but you know this is healthy because it's a, it's allowing 
a, a rotation, a sector rotation with money rotating um, from um, like from the like the the, the high high performing stocks of the last few years to the um, more of the lagging sectors. You mean you mean like the Amazons of the world, the Facebooks of the world? Yeah, like the service related companies uh, towards the uh, like the hard like what we call the tangible companies. Or commodity, or cyclical-oriented companies. Yeah. Well, we just, yeah, we just had, yeah, we just had Rafi on the line. We we're talking about oils because the oils are certainly acting better and looking better. But if, if you see a deceleration, Martin, is you know hard commodities and oils where you want to be? Yeah, because the, it's don't forget that what you have is um, is uh, if you're a commodity producer, is the supply side of the equation that you can control. And this is what this and and uh, interestingly enough. This deceleration is uh, happening while supply conditions in most commodity markets are um, are really really tight, uh, especially on like if you exclude oil companies or all the oil in, um, uh, patch. Uh, most of the metal uh, that I track have very tight uh, commercial inventories, and uh, and uh, and it, when it comes to oil. Um, this is more of a consumer commodity as opposed to an, an industrial commodity. Uh, both consumers and c- corporations are, are are consuming oil, so that the fact that the economy is is still ver- very highly sensitive to consumer or con- like what we call cons- uh, consumer consumption and corporate consumption, uh, both are still very strong uh, by historical standards. And again, like I want to repeat and make it clear, we are decelerating from above average growth levels uh, right now. Yeah, and that, that weak U.S. dollar certainly helped those commodities as well, both you know materials and oils. Um, you touched on the deceleration and you talked about tariffs. Uh, how concerned are you about Trump and his tweets and uh, the news around uh, you know uh, whatever Trump's going to do next? Uh, I'm not that concerned. Uh, I think this is a, I, you know, I don't want to sound complacent, but I think this is a sideshow. <laughs> okay. Of epic proportions, it is. Yeah. But yeah, no, because, my no, question. The, the, the important thing is policy, right, as opposed to tweets. So they, they put in tax policy, which was good. Now that he tweets about whatever he's going to tweet about, whether it's Syria, obviously you may have to deal with something there, or you may have to deal with... The Trans-Pacific or, Exactly, yeah. So there's always something going on, or his yeah. tweets with, but the, with China. But the, the, the point is, what's actually taking place? And, you know, lower taxes are certainly helping earnings. Yeah, and at the end of the day, uh, very few people do the the exercise, but we we do it. That's quant like we calculate everything. But in terms of total uh, U.S. exports, uh, like what China is targeting is only like like two percent of U.S. exports. Well, same with the steel. You flip it around. He did the same thing with steel. Steel is such a small part of the American economy, yet he decided to protect it. I want to ask you before we go to break here, Martin. Um, what if Donald Trump were impeached? What would the, how would the market act and react to that? Uh, I think it would still be uh, more noise than anything, because at the end of the day, uh, by the time we get the actual result, we will have a better view on the economy and the impact of the Fed's monetary policy. I think going forward, we have to stop looking at, at Trump and, uh, and the tweets, uh, but more about the Fed's policy. Right now, the market is in line with what we call the dot plot uh, of the Federal Reserves, meaning that the market is seeing two more rate hikes. Um, But if the market all of a sudden starts to see like three rate hikes this year and maybe one more next year, 
I think that the market could become concerned that the monetary policy is getting too tight. Uh, so obviously, the Trump policy and the result of the November election will be uh, will compound uh, market movements. But at the end of the day, I think it's 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 this is a time where we have to make sure that the Fed does not lead to a monetary overkill, so that we enter a recession next year as so, opposed to a smooth recession. So, so yeah. So, so the house with the power is not the president. The house with the power is the central bank. Uh, look, yeah. All right, let's pay some bills around here. Let's get back then with Martin Roberge, our North American chief strategist at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio, 640 in Toronto. Wolfgang Klein, your host, Jack Hartle, producer and co-host of the show. And we have Martin Roberge standing live in Montreal, Canaccord's North American chief strategist. Um, Martin, on a price earnings basis, the Canadian stock market looks a little cheaper than the U.S. stock market. But you don't just look at it that way, do you? No, I don't. I, 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 like there's various ways to, to skin a cat. And when you skin the TSX, um, you know, you go, you go companies by companies, sectors by sectors, and uh, Canadian corporations are probably those companies that have done or used uh, the, the debt or the leverage to, uh, to, you know, to grow their business or to increase their dividends like the most in the world. Like the, we have companies in Canada that have such a high debt level that at some point it could create um, some tensions or some risk when it comes to paying back that debt and interest, those interest payments when the next downturn arrives. And that's my concern. I'm not concerned about the near-term as long as you know the, the economy is jogging along, but and interest rates remain low, rates will gradually go up. Yeah, and I don't think that they will never necessarily choke um, corporations and consumers. I'm just concerned that because there there are recessions and there are downturns, and eventually the next time down, we could have companies facing like a, a cash um, a, um, a, a cash crisis. Sure, crisis. sure. And, uh, and this, is, this is my concern, that when you look at the rest of the world, Canada sits almost right at the top in terms of, of leverage. Corporate debt. Corporate so, leverage. Corporate debt. So yeah. Canada, corporate Canadians are typically considered uh, relatively conservative. So how do we compare uh, relative to the U.S., Martin? Well, I think uh, the U.S. is about uh, half, um, halfway in the... Uh, among like the like the DM or the developed economies, the developed uh, yep. U.S. right in the middle, but international uh, like uh, Europe right at the bottom and uh, Canada right at the top. Yeah, and so now let's talk about investing then, because uh, I've read a, a bunch of work in the last couple of months just talking about how you can reduce risk in your portfolio if you take some emerging market exposure. It may have been a piece that you wrote, and that emerging markets go through long phases of bear markets and long phases of bull markets. So yep. the last six, seven years, they underperformed. Now they're beginning to outperform and have for about 12 months, but that doesn't tend to stop after 12 months. It tends to have a run of, what, five or six years, eh, Martin? 
Yeah, actually, if you combine if you combine emerging market equities with EFIs, uh, Europe, Asia, Far East, yep, international equities like those those are global stock markets will normally have ten year cycles. So, how do their corporations look on the emerging market side yeah. of things? There. Well, they are extremely um, uh, healthy because don't forget they were the first to go through the Euro- European debt crisis. And as a result, they had to unload most of their debt uh, to meet um, the, bank, the banking standards. So they have been actually, it's kind of like while the U.S. and, 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 and the Canadian corporations have re- relevered, uh, European corporations have delivered. So on, uh, on um, enterprise value to sales basis, these, co- these companies tra- trade at a 50% discount to uh, – Canadian and U.S. Uh, companies. Fifty, so wow! What, so that's that's a that's a hell of a discount. Actually, this is unprecedented, and that's why I keep on pounding the table and asking investors, like, please diversify away from Canada and some of the U.S. Uh, uh, sectors as well. Yeah, I agree. So, so just bringing it back to home here, uh, Martin. What are the Canadian companies doing with all this debt? Why why have they raised so much debt, and um, how are they using it? Is it product or being very productive with it, or are no. they? No, and that's why I, I'm I, I'm not happy about well, I'm concerned about what I see because normally you would expect to see leverage if it's used um, the right way you're you're going to grow your your profitability uh, way ahead of your counterparts or those that are not using as much debt and we're we're seeing the opposite so that means that the debt was used to increase dividends uh, increase like increase payouts um, buyback stock buy buy stock hopefully at least. <laughs> But that, that, that's what the Canadian investors have been really demanding in this low interest rate environment. They want higher dividends, and they're forcing the corporations to pay those dividends through debt. That's a good point. Yeah, and they're, that's, they're, that's, yeah, but it's going to eventually uh, bite, bite, bite them because that actually those same investors asking asking for that dividend are owning the basket of stocks with the highest leverage, yeah. uh, lever, highest leverage balance sheet. Because if, if you think about it in the long term, they would have been better off putting those assets, putting that debt to productive use mm-hmm. and then growing their own earnings over the long term Organically. as opposed to just paying out debt that they can't afford. And this is what history will tell, tell you in two, three years from now. So today, the right strategy is to go and buy those high dividend yielders elsewhere in the world. Why should you limit yourself to Canada? Hey, what about the, because uh, Jack and I own AT&T and Verizon, uh, two of the telcos in America. Again, everyone's on their smartphone. The smartphone bills are rising. Verizon has 100 million customers. A hundred, three times the population of Canada uh, has an account with Verizon. Stocks are trending lower, but my dividend is about 5.5%. Can I hold, stay with the trade or should I cut it? Uh, I, would, I would recommend you to swap some of that exposure into European telecoms, which are enjoying stronger pricing power. Pricing power in the U.S. is like, is like it's very competitive down there. Yeah. So even though you've, you've got like pretty decent sub, 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 subscribers growth, these companies are like taking prices down like quarter after quarter to win market shares. While if you look at European tele, the telecom industry over there, like it's it's a little bit more regulated, like Canada. So companies are enjoying slightly more pricing power. So uh, again, dividend yield for dividend yield. I prefer to have an exposure to European telecoms, which also should provide you with a um, a currency exposure or maybe some gain also on the euro. 
So the total return in Canadian dollar term or in U.S. dollar term will will be uh, even higher. Hey, Martin, if you were going to Europe as a Canadian, uh, when would you buy the euro? Would you buy it now or would you wait for the summer as a Canadian? I would buy it now. I would use the dip uh, that, uh, that we've seen over the last couple of weeks to, to buy it now. Like, I want to stay long euro, buy euro versus CAD for at least another year or two. Because I believe that the euro will at least has 10% appreciation potential versus the Canadian dollar. So if we buy the European stock market, you think it's going to uh, rise in the next uh, 12 months as well, Martin? Well, yeah, yeah. Dollar for dollar, stocks for stocks, I think it will match. If not, outperform the TSX. Folks, if you're going to do it yourself and if you're going to buy an ETF, the moral of the story right now is unhedged unhedged currency take on the currency exposure you like to minimize risk in your portfolio folks that's it for the show hi-fi radio first anniversary is now under the belt jack is a broadcaster with one year of experience and he's doing such a fine job myself i keep hacking my way through it but another week another dollar wish you a great weekend look forward to being with you next week on hi-fi radio You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, Portfolio Managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.